Good morning, First Church. Why don't we go ahead and stand? We're glad you could be here. We're going to go ahead and get in some worship.
soil I now surrender you are breaking new ground so I yield to you into your careful hand when I trust you I don't need to understand make me a vessel But oh. 
Jesus, we thank you for everything that you do for us. Um, we pray that you would just keep our hearts set on you this morning, Father, that you would give us joy and peace. I pray that you would help us to be more aware of your presence, Father. Help us to um, help us to just praise you with all of our hearts um, and to just give you everything we have this morning. We pray that you would bless Bob as he speaks and that you would open our hearts to whatever you have to say to us in Jesus name. Um, thank you. We are uh, going to take a time, a little break to rearrange the stage and we'll be right back. All right. Welcome back everybody that's watching from home. For everybody that's here, we're going to ask you to find a seat. Here we go. This is starting again. Um, we're glad you're here. We're glad you're uh, watching online or here in person. We're finishing up, hooray, we're finishing up the book of Hosea. I know for some of you it feels like we've been there forever, and we have. So uh, we're going to be finishing up today. We're going to finish the last two chapters. I just want to remind you just a little bit, very shortly, what we've come from. You know, when we talk about Hosea, we're talking about one of what's called the minor prophets. Now, they're called the minor prophets not because they're less than other prophets, but because the books tend to be shorter. And today in uh, chapter 13 and 14, we'll pick up from where we were last week. But with this book of Hosea, um, we're coming up on some stuff that's, that is, is extremely difficult. And, and commentators have struggled with and wrestled with parts of this uh, because... Oftentimes in the minor prophets, they're dealing with issues that are going on around them. They're dealing with issues of, of uh, injustice. They're dealing of, with issues of judgment. And we're dealing with that here. And so remember when we started, we talked about this man, this prophet named Hosea. He married this woman named Gomer. She, she cheated on him multiple times. She went away and became a prostitute. And God told him, you go back and get her. And the interesting thing is because... In the, we see this in the Minor Prophets. We see this throughout the whole Old Testament. We see the whole Old Testament is pointing to Jesus. Because what does God tell me? Go, go get her and buy her. Buy her. Which looks forward to that day when, when our sins will be paid for uh, by Jesus Christ. And, and so all throughout this book, we've been seeing these, uh, these difficult passages filtered in with these glimpses of what's to come, these glimpses of the heart of God. And the purpose of the book of Hosea is to show the heart of God and to call his people to repentance. That's the purpose of the book of Hosea. And we see that over and over and over. He wants them to repent and return to him. He shows his heart. It's an amazing thing when you think about this. The God of the universe, the God who created us, who created people, is willing to show us his heart as it's being broken, as he cries out in pain over this relationship that is being ripped to shreds um, by the children of Israel and God's heart is breaking and he tells us about it. You know, you think about it, it's hard for us to tell people about things that are difficult for us. It can be hard for us. Um, uh, um, you know, in sharing difficult issues, sharing things we're going through. You know, I, it's hard for me. My, I mentioned last week my mom just died, and it's hard dealing with that. And then people talking and, and talking about it and finding that little things remind me of, of my mom. And little things all of a sudden, I, and, and you guys know, I'm such a crybaby anyways. 
that you add something onto it, and it's just like, I'm just walking along happy as a clam, and, and, and somebody says, you know, it's like, well done, thou good and faithful servant. I'm going, my mom just heard that, and I start crying. You know, and, and, and it can be difficult, so I tend to sometimes kind of pull into myself and not share and not be as open, and God's the opposite of that. He gives us, he gives us the, 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 the idea, the outline of how we're supposed to live with each other even, open, even vulnerable, sharing our heart, even when it's broken, being willing to share because he shares his heart because he wants them to repent and to return to him. Now, when, one, when, 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 when uh, Bev and I had been, were married not too long, we had our first kid, our, our oldest son named Derek, and uh, he's not here so I can just say things about him. Um, our oldest son, Derek, and when he was about four or five one time in our house, um, I'm in the living room, my wife's in the kitchen, and she's talking to him, and there's a little bit of a, you know, a little bit of a discussion going on there where there's a little bit, and all of a sudden, I mean, he just said something that was so ugly and mean just mean-spirited. And so I'm thinking, oh my goodness, I can't believe that kid just said that. Then I'm thinking, my wife's in the kitchen, there are knives in the kitchen. And so I'm like, boosh, right in, and I just scooped him up, and I said, you're with me. And we went right up the steps to another room, and I said, listen. And I gave the dad speech that probably every dad has given. I loved her before you were a glimmer in our eyes. And after you leave and go wherever you're gonna go, I'm gonna love her, I'm gonna live with her and love her more than anyone except Jesus. And we brought you in and I can take you out. So don't you ever say something like that to your mother. And I wanna tell you, I was angry. I was angry. And it wasn't an anger that was like I wanted to hurt him anger. It was an anger that was a broken heart anger. I was so sad that words like that would come out of my child's mouth to his mother. I couldn't believe it. And I was so sad that, that my wife, the person I love more than anyone else in this world, had to, had to take that, the hurt that was in it. And I told him, you know, there's going to be repercussions from this. We're going to have to work, work through this. But that wasn't the point. I wasn't, I didn't care about the repercussions. It was that it broke my heart to hear it from my own son. It broke my heart to hear it. Now, at our we can all laugh about it now. We all laugh about it. It's all fine. Although sometimes I think I should have hit him, but I don't, I didn't. No, that's not true. I, I got to stop joking about that. All right. So, but this is what God is saying. God is saying, my heart's broken. And, and in the book of Hosea, God is angry. But it's a broken heart angry. It's not, I want to hurt you angry. And part of it is, he's angry and brokenhearted because what they are going to bring upon themselves because of their sin. For, for my son, it was like, you can't, I don't, don't want you to grow up to be a person that talks like that to women or to anyone. I don't want you to be that kind of a person because that will lead to a life of frustration. That will lead to a life of anger. That will lead, you, you, it just leads to death. 
That's where it goes. And this is what God is saying to the children of Israel. Where you're going will kill you. And in the chapter we're going to look at today, God gets graphic. He wants them to understand the whirlwind that they're going to reap. All right? So we're going to talk about Hosea. We're going to talk about chapters 13 and 14. And I entitle it Judgment and Healing. Judgment is 13. Healing is 14. Last week, we talked about in chapter 12 the deception that we all struggle with. Right? This week, we're going to look at here the first point, the judgment that we all face. Now here, let's begin in in chapter 13, verses 1 and 2. It's on the screens. You can turn your Bibles, whatever, whichever you have with it. It says, when Ephraim spoke, people trembled. He was exalted in Israel, but he became guilty of Baal worship and died. So in verse 1, he's saying that the Baal worship is leading to death and destruction. That's what he's telling them. He's saying, this is what you've done. It's like in Proverbs, there's a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof is death. The end is death. We think sometimes it seems, this seems good, and it leads to terrible things. Why? Because we don't, we don't put it before God. We don't allow God's wisdom to be involved in that. And that's what happened here when we talk about Ephraim. We're talking about Israel, the northern tribes. Um, and, he said, and, and he's saying they're guilty. They're guilty. And now judgment is going to be involved. If you look, he says, now they sin more and more. They make idols for themselves from their silver, cleverly fashioned images, all of whom, all of them, the work of craftsmen. It is said of these people, they offer human sacrifices. They kiss calf idols. And they do this, we've learned already, they do this and on the mountain of God, Bethel, the house of God. They have their idols. And he's saying... This will bring judgment. And he's going to give them some pictures of judgment. He's going to paint pictures. And some of them are not pretty pictures in that sense. They're going to be difficult pictures. In chapter uh, 13, verse 3, the first picture he says, Therefore they will be like the morning mist, like the early dew that disappears, like chaff swirling from a threshing floor, like smoke escaping through a window. Now that window would be like a chimney for us. And if you've ever seen... um, we heat sometimes our house in, in, in the wintertime. We have a wood stove that can heat the whole house. And, and the, you can go out and the smoke comes out and then it just dissipates. It doesn't last long. It's like on a cold winter day when you breathe and you see your breath. It just dissipates. It doesn't last long. And this is what he's saying. You're not going to last long. He says you have no foundation. You have no weight. We've seen already, they're always grasping for things, grasping for glory, grasping for meaning. And he's saying, you have no weight. You have no glory. You have nothing. You're like a mist. You're like the chaff swirling on the threshing floor. Now, you guys know I get kind of anal about some of this stuff, about historical stuff and all that kind of thing. But I I think this is kind of important. I, I want you to see what a threshing floor looks like, okay? Here's a picture of a threshing floor. Now, what it would be is it w- it'll, it'll be this round, very flat surface. Now, this one is a very old one, and so it's, the t- stones aren't as tight as they normally would be and stuff like that. But they, they bring in like the wheat, and they'll lay it all down, and they'll have uh, donkeys go around, and they'll carry some heavy boards. And what that does is it knocks the kernels, the important part of the wheat, off of the stalks, and, and, and it knocks off the little fluffy part that's inedible off. That's called the chaff, right? So they go around a bunch of times until they feel like it's been knocked off. When it's really ripe, it comes off very easily. And so then what they do is they come in with like, it would be like pitchforks. And they, all this thick, uh, looks like hay. I mean, in a sense, it's just wheat. And they would throw it up in the air. And what happens? Any kind of a breeze, the chaff just flutters away. 
the, the, the stalks, which, are, which are, are not edible, but they, they don't want that they save them for animals, the stalks would fl fly, but not very far, just outside generally the circle. The chaff just goes. And the heavier wheat, the kernels of wheat, fall right back down on the ground. And they would just do that and do that. That's, called, that, that's part of the threshing. And so threshing floors, this is oftentimes were on high places. So there's a good breeze. This was typical all the time back then. And, and, and this is an important thing because threshing and the threshing floor is referred to many times. Now when you come to it, you'll know what they're talking about. They're talking about something like that. When we get to... Um, well, at least one passage, you know, where someone's threshing and it turns out they're threshing in a valley because they're afraid. They don't want anybody to see them instead of being up on the high place. So th these are, this is the idea of what a threshing floor is. And so when he says, like chaff swirling from a, from a, a threshing floor, they know exactly, it just, and it just goes, right? It's like on a windy day, if you throw grass up in the air, it just goes. And they're totally subject to the whims of the wind at that time whichever way the wind's blowing. And so he's saying, You're, you have nothing to you. You have no substance. The second thing he tells them, he says in verse, in verse 7 and 8, he says, so I will be like a lion to them, like a leopard I will lurk by the path, like a bear robbed of her cubs I will attack them and rip them open, like a lion I will devour them, a wild animal will tear them apart. Now here we go. Here, like, oh, God. We have to understand something here because this is typical Hebrew poetry and imagery. God is not saying, I am the lion. He's saying, Assyria's coming. And they're going to be the lion. Now, I am going to allow them to do that because this is what, you, this is what you're, you're doing. This is what you're calling for. This is what you want. You're going for it with the way you live. But it's going to be like a lion. It's going to be like a bear. So he uses images, chaff, lion, bear. And then he says, the guilt of Ephraim is stored up. His sins are on record. Pains as of a woman in childbirth come to him, but he is a child without wisdom. When the time arrives, he doesn't have the sense to come out of the womb. So now he's bringing another image. It's, it's, it's the image of childbirth. But he's saying there's something wrong with this kid. There's something wrong. And he's telling them, in the first one, you have no foundation. In the second one, he's telling them, this is going to be ruthless. Where you guys are going is going to lead to a ruthless death. It's going to be ruthless. And the Assyrians were known for their ruthlessness. They were known for what they did to cities. Because, again, let's remember, when an army invades, what do they do? They besiege the cities. So people have a choice. Do we run to the mountains or to the coast? Or do we go for safety in the city? That's our choice. If you ran to the mountains or the coast... Generally speaking, the armies would just totally leave you alone. You weren't worth their time. You're not the person they're trying to get to, right? But mountains can be dangerous. You're going, you, you, you leave everything behind. You're a refugee. The coast can be dangerous. You go into a place where other people are. They might not welcome you. And so some go to the cities. And Assyria had a policy of decimating the cities. That's how they kept people in line. Because they were horrible in what they did. And so he's saying here, it's going to be ruthless. Finally, he says, this third one, he says, it's your ignorance has brought you to this. This is your fault. And then, I will deliver this people from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. Where, O oh, death, is your play, are your plagues? Where, O oh, grave, is your destruction? I will have no compassion, even though he thrives among his brothers. An east wind from the Lord will come, blowing in, in from the desert his spirit. 
uh, his spring will fail and his well dry up. His storehouse will be plundered in all his treasures. All right, let me just say something real quick about verse 13. Uh, when, when you translate from the Hebrew into, say, English, it can be very difficult. The original Hebrew had no vowels. And so things like question marks, exclamation marks, things that we would normally see, they're not there. And so what you do is then you have to determine from the context. And sometimes verses are written in a way that implies that it's a question. And so when you look at the beginning of verse thir- uh, 14, this is very difficult because he, when he says, I will deliver this people from the power of the grave, I will redeem them from death, many uh, scholars think those are questions. They said they're written like they're a question. So he's saying, will I deliver this people from the grave? Will I redeem them from the power of death? And so it really, the, how we take this verse, is it's difficult to know, is this verse a negative or is it a positive? And and and. So I've studied it, and and I've read a lot, and I've come to this conclusion. I don't know. I don't know for sure what he's trying to say there in that verse. It's very difficult to understand. But we do know what he's saying in verse 15 when he says, An east wind from the Lord will come, blowing in from the desert. His spring will fail and his well dry up. His storehouse will be plundered. Now, I do know that verse 14 is a passage that Paul quotes later. And Paul quotes it in a very positive way. He says, oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, grave, where is your victory? And he states that death has lost its sting. Grave has lost its victory because of Jesus Christ. So I don't know if this is looking forward to that. I don't know exactly how to interpret it. But I do know this. There are in Israel, every so often in the Middle East, these incredible east winds. We get them occasionally too. In fact, we just had one through the Midwest up into Idaho called a a derecho. And what it is, is it's an incredible storm that has sometimes over 100 mile an hour winds that go in a straight line. It doesn't spin. So it runs for thousands of miles sometimes. uh, Here's a picture from Iowa as it started coming. And it just rolls on people. It's not like a tornado because tornadoes are very compact. It's huge. It can be a couple hundred miles across. And if you've seen anything of what happened in Idaho, the devastation is unbelievable. Now, that's that east wind he's talking about. He's warning them. There is a destruction that's coming, and it's going to come on you suddenly. You're going to think everything is fine. You're going to think that you're, you, you, you have everything under control, and this destruction is going to come on you suddenly. So, what is he saying? He's painting these pictures. He's painting pictures to warn them. Now, remember, he's painting these pictures to get them to repent. He's trying to draw them back. He's saying, do you understand what's going on? And just so that we remember also, we've talked about this some already. What is going on with them? They have made these uh, uh, treaties, covenants. And what they've done is they've gone behind the back. They made one with Assyria. Then they went behind Assyria's back and made one with Egypt. And you can't, you can't have treaties. It's impossible. You defend me if he attacks. Defend me if he attacks. And so Assyria finds out finally. And they come. Now, where we're at right now historically is possibly 30 or 40 years before that happens. And God is telling them ahead of time, this is what's going to happen. You've got to believe me. Even though things are going really good right now. And at that point in Israel, we've talked about this, they're doing well. The crops are good. They're on a main thoroughfare, a a trade, and they're making money off of trade. They're selling their grain at a good price. Overall, they're doing well. And God is telling them, 
but here's what you're doing. You're not following me. Have you ever noticed in your own life when things are going really well, you can kind of just coast. And then when difficult things happen, you cry out to God. Why? Because your pain is right there and it's immediate. And this is the problem. God is telling them, you're coasting. You're, 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 you're trusting in other things. They're worshiping other gods. And, and what is that for us? You know, we don't have little idols necessarily. It's, it's when you trust something else more than you trust God. When you think God can't, God can't do this for me, I need to do it myself. In verse 16, he says, Samaria will be held guilty for she has rebelled against her God. They will fall by the sword and this, their little ones will be dashed to pieces and their pregnant women will be ripped open. It's horrifying. It's horrifying. Think about it. God's telling them 30 years ahead of time, this is what the Assyrians are gonna do to you. Do you want that? There's still time. Turn to me. He's telling them, turn to me. Come back to me. This won't happen. It would be like for some of us, uh, sometimes when we, 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 uh, we get involved in something, maybe a parent, maybe a friend, maybe, maybe a child, somebody tries to tell you, you know, I don't think that's a good idea. That could be really bad for you. What are they trying to do? Out of love, they're trying to help you through a difficult time. And they may be wrong. Okay, I understand that. They may be wrong, but it doesn't change the fact that their motivation, generally speaking, is because they love you. And God is saying, I love you. I don't want this to happen. In fact, we see in a couple of the other uh, minor prophets, he tells Assyria and Babylon, you're going to pay for what you did. You were horrible to people. And that will be visited upon you because it was wrong. See, God's not saying this is right. He's told us many times, this is wrong. He's telling them, this is what's coming. You don't have to endure this. This is not what I have for you. And he's weeping. He is weeping as he says this. Now, how do we apply this? This is difficult, you know? Because, because when we deal with something, something like death, why do people die? Whenever someone dies, it just doesn't feel right. Why? Because we were not made for death. That's not God's original plan. He didn't make us to die. Sin did that. That's not what he wanted. You know, I was reading a while back in the, in the, the Newtown shootings up, up north where all those children were shot. At one of the funerals, um, they were talking to this mom of one of the kids who died. And uh, it, was, it was about a week later. And she said, you know, I'm an atheist. But for just a moment, I believed in God. When we buried my child, I had this sense that there is a being who has left, but is still somewhere. She said, I had this sense of a spirit that has gone somewhere. And she said, there must be a God. There must be a God. And then she said, a little while later, I shook myself and said, what are you doing? That's ah, just a feeling because you were at the grave. It's not true. And I thought, wow, for just a moment, God broke into her life and said, turn to me. Turn to me. And she has fought it off and decided it was just a feeling. She convinced herself that what she felt was wrong. But you know what? We all know there's something wrong 
with death. Why? Because in our heart, we were not made for it. We're all under the sentence of death. It's coming, just like this exile is coming for them. We're all a mist. We're all a vapor. Life goes fast. The end is oftentimes sudden and unexpected. And oftentimes our unwise living can hasten our end. But when death comes, it's ruthless and it's total. It is all-consuming. And oftentimes it is unjust. And those are not happy thoughts. But we have to realize that we all will face him one day to determine our eternity forever. And this chapter 13 is, is a difficult chapter. But that's why there's chapter 14. See, we see this judgment that we all face, but also we see this healing that we all need. He says in verse 1, and I want you to see, this is the crescendo. This is the climax of the book. If you want to really get a grip on Hosea, it all comes here. Return Israel to the Lord your God. Your sins have been your downfall. He says, come to me. I'll, I will forgive your sins. That's your downfall. Come to me. I'll forgive your sins. He's telling them, Assyria's on the horizon. It's coming for you, but I can save you from them. And think of it. The destruction that Assyria brings is like 30 years away, 25, 30 years away. It's, they don't even see it. They can hardly even think of it. But God tells them this is what's true. And then it comes down to this. Do you believe what God says? Or do you believe what you feel? And sometimes we have to override our feelings and trust God. Sometimes we have to override what our feelings say and believe what God says. Believe what God says about you. Believe it. He says, return, come back. I love you. God is telling them all of these things, even the horribleness in chapter 13. He's saying, it's because I love you. I don't want this to happen to you. Return to me. Judgment is not what God wants. You know, if judgment was, is what God wanted, why? He didn't have to write any of this. Just judge. That would be fair. He doesn't have to explain. You know, if someone, if someone in, uh, in, in just murders someone in a terrible way, it's nice to say this is why you're going to prison, but we don't have to say this is why you're going to prison. Just put them in prison. They'll figure it out. And I'm like, okay, this has nothing to do with what I think about incarceration or any of those things. Don't read anything into it. The point is, God is this ultimate judge. He doesn't have to give us any reasons. He doesn't have to give warning. Why does he give warning? Because he loves us. Because he loves them. He's saying, I want to give you a chance. You got one more chance. Come on. You got one more chance. And he gave more than one. He sent more than one prophet to them in those end days. To warn them what was coming. To warn them, as we've seen in Hosea, this whirlwind is coming. You're reaping a whirlwind, and it's going to be total destruction. Please don't go that way. He's begging. He's crying. He's showing his heart to them. So how? If they wanted to return, how do they return? And he tells them, this is the way of healing. This is two verses. Um, in Hosea 14, verses 2 and 3, that are the most beautiful, powerful verses that, that you can come across. Th these are great. I mean, I would encourage you, read these verses multiple times. Maybe memorize them. Because he's saying, come back, come back, come back. I love you. Come back. And somebody says, well, well, how? 
great question. Here we go. Take words with you and return to the Lord. Say to him, forgive all our sins and receive us graciously that we may offer the fruit of our lips. Assyria cannot save us. We will not mount war horses. We will never again say our gods to what our own hands have made. For in you, the fatherless find compassion. And so he tells them, this is how you return. First way, first thing is this idea of confession and repentance. When he, sa- when he, says, when he says, take words with you, this is that idea that you, you bring words. It's not that it's, these are your words, you bring words. And so what words would they be bringing? Well, that would be, that would be the law of God. That would be God's words that they're bringing. Bring words with you. He says, so the idea is, I understand, what does God say? And I come to him with it. I come to him with it and then, and then say, forgive us all our sins and receive us graciously. Now, this is great verse, and this is why. Forgive us all our sins. This is this idea of this mercy. In other words, I'm not getting what I deserve to give. Forgive me for my sins. But here's the point, because if God just forgave us for our sins, done, go, see ya, what would we do? we sin again. I need more. Than that. We need more than that. And so what does he say? He says, and receive us graciously. Now it's grace. Bring grace into the mixture because I need grace to continue. That's the only way I'll make it. God could forgive my sins and I still am not able. I still am not able to do what he wants. I need his grace. And we see it even more as it is fleshed out more in the, in the New Testament. Then his spirit empowers us because we still can't do it on our own, but he graciously gives us the spirit to empower us to live for him. And so he says, forgive us our sins. Interesting, remember, we always talk about this. God forgives the sins. We don't earn it. We don't do it. This is God's mercy working in our lives and all our sins. We come to him with everything. We can't pick and choose. All of me, not just a part of me. And this is where we can struggle sometimes because oftentimes we come to God, but we're not willing to give up all. We're not willing to give all. And he says, forgive us our sins, all of all our sins. And then he says that we may offer the fruit of our lips. This is, this is an idea. The fruit of our lips is this idea of a sacrifice, but, but it, is a, it is a speaking thing. It's somehow the fruit of my lips. It's an, it's an offering I give to God. So it seems to be this idea of a vow. I'm saying, God, I'm going I'm to follow you. I'm going to follow you as best I can. Forgive me for my sins. Receive me graciously. Give me your grace. I will follow. That's the natural consequence. I will follow you. That, you know, even in, in Romans 12, 12 chapter, chapter 1, you know, we, we give our whole body, our whole, whole being to God. And then... It says, Assyria cannot save us. We will not mount war horses. We will never again say our gods to what our own hands have made for in you the fatherless find compassion. So the, other, the next thing is renouncing something. Saying, God, I'm not doing that anymore. I'm not going there anymore. I know that's wrong. Now I know sometimes we struggle. Like I'll say, God, I'm not doing that anymore. And then a couple days later, what happens? I did that. And I come back to him again, please forgive me. I don't want to do that anymore. I want to get rid of that. So it's that, it's that vow, it's the fruit of our lips, it's the idea that we're saying, I will serve you. I will renounce those things that I tend to trust. Now, what are those things? Like, we have to think, what's your Assyria? 
They were trusting Assyria to be, keep safe. What are you trusting? What are you really afraid of? That can be a great indicator of something that, that what, what you're really afraid of. What do you really, really want? What are you tempted to rely on? What are the things that you keep from God? What hinders your relationship with God? What are the things that you think you need, you want, and that God's not going to give you? At least he's not going to do it the way you want. We constantly need to come to God and confess sin, sins and reaffirm our dedication to him. We constantly need a time to evaluate ourselves. What am I trusting here? When I get into a difficult situation, my first response, what am I trusting there? When I get into a financial situation, and what is my first response? What am I trusting? Medical, all kinds of things. In a job, at school, all those things. We have to stop and think that. And then finally, that last line, for in you, the fatherless find compassion. That's a huge line. Because in that day and age, the fatherless were the worst. They were the bottom of society. They were the most taken advantage of. And we've talked about this a number of times. Now, oftentimes, when children weren't wanted, especially, unfortunately, especially girls, they would be set out by the side of the road for the animals to take them. Or oftentimes, priestesses from the temples uh, that involved prostitution would take them and grow them up to become prostitutes. The fatherless were the ones that were at the bottom of the totem pole. I read the other day that in, uh, especially in the Roman world, around the time of Jesus, it was almost impossible to find a family that had one, more than one daughter. Six, seven, eight boys, only one daughter. Now, when that was happening, who were the people who were wandering, going through the streets, picking up those girls? Christians. Orphanages sprung out of that in the early days of the first, first century or two. Taking care of the fatherless became the watchword of the believers because it was such a huge thing. Now, it may not be for us necessarily always the fatherless, but it's who is the least of these? Who is the downtrodden? Who is the looked down upon? Who is the one that most people don't want to associate with? Who are the ones that, that tend, tend to be looked down upon by society or dealt with poorly in our society? He's saying, those people, for in you the fatherless find compassion. For in you the least of these find a compassionate, loving God. And we have to make sure that we are on the forefront of being those that show compassion and love to the least of these in our society. I have to realize also that I'm an orphan and in God I find compassion. I have been adopted by the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. What a great privilege. And so what is he telling, what is he saying there in, in, in verses two and three, he's giving them, hey, you want healing, here it is. Just come to me. Confess your sins. Recognize that my grace will cover them. Vow to me. Follow me. Follow me. Don't worship other idols. Don't trust others. And then in, in you, the fatherless, find compassion. Recognize who you are. 
and who God is. Recognizing who I am and what I really need most in this whole world. God has the love that I need. And then that affects every part of my life. When I begin to see, and this is such an important thing for us to be able to be self-aware and recognize who we are, to be able to see our faults, our misconceptions, to hold them up to the word of God and let the word of God speak to them. Because I find this is true just like even in prayer. The reason we don't pray pray, is because we're not desperate. You don't need more discipline to pray. You need more self-awareness. We need self-awareness. Who am I? Who is God? That drives me to prayer. When I see me for who I am and I see God for who he is, I recognize I need to go to him. He's my only hope. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. They don't inherit the kingdom of God. He says, the ones who recognize themselves. And so once we do that, once we return, he's telling them, this is what, this is what's going to happen. He says, come back to me. I'll heal your waywardness. I'll heal their waywardness and love them freely for my anger has turned away from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He will blossom like a lily, like a cedar of Lebanon. He will send down his roots. Um, I, I, you know, I get goofy about some of this stuff. I, I know that. But I started thinking cedar of Lebanon, cedar of Lebanon. I don't even know what a cedar of Lebanon. I've read about it in the Bible all the time. Bingo. There you are. That's a cedar of Lebanon right there, that big, giant tree. But here's what's important about a cedar of Lebanon, all right? The, the important thing about them is that they are, they are uh, they're incredibly, uh, how do I explain this? It's like they're dense, but, but woodworkers say they're very easy to work with. They have a sweet smell so that when you b- use them in your house, uh, it, it, it has this smell that's very appealing, that, that smells really good. And uh, he, it's, it's this idea that it lasts a long time. It, uh, it's, it's a beautiful wood, and it smells really good. It, it has this uh, pleasant appearance. It's easy to work with, and it's very durable. The cedars of Lebanon are known throughout the world for being one of the most, if not the most durable wood that has ever grown. In Jerusalem, okay, here goes a historical rabbit's trail, right? In the Jerusalem where the temple is, or was, is now uh, the Dome of the Rock, the third holiest site in all of Islam. And in the backside, the south side of the Dome of the Rock is the Al-Aqsa Ma- uh, Mosque, right? And, and a number of years ago, it, it, uh, it needed to be rebuilt. It was struggling. And so, so they tore it apart. I mean, they took down the roof. And so they found these beams, and the archaeologists who are working with them said these beams are, are uh, what they call second-use materials. In other words, they've been used before. And, and, but they're in like beautiful, almost perfect shape. But because of holes and markings, they can tell they were used somewhere else before. And they said, well, let's just, they took one. They said, let's just uh, do a little carbon dating on this thing. See how old this is. And it came out 60 AD. 1900 years earlier, that beam was a beam somewhere else. But the site it is on is where the temple is. And that got them going, right? Because you start going, these could be temple beams. So then they took another one and they carbon dated it and another one and they carbon dated it. And five of the beams dated into the 800 BCs. They could have been in Solomon's temple. 
because they're on that site. And they got really excited about this, but unfortunately, it's in an Islamic mosque, and they weren't as excited about it. And so they just put them back up in some places, in other places, and reuse them. But you have a beam, multiple beams, that are 3,000 years old almost. That's the cedar of Lebanon. Okay, so we went on that little trail just so you can see um, what he's talking about when he says cedars of Lebanon and why those are important. Because what he says is they will flourish. They, uh, uh, Israel's fame will, no, wait, there it is. Uh, they will dwell in his shade. Nope, just above that. His fragrance is like a cedar of Lebanon. There you go. I finally found it. And, and then in verses uh, in verse 8, he says, Ephraim, what more do I have to do with idols? I will answer him and care for him. Uh, I, I am a, like a flourishing juniper, like your fruitfulness comes from me. All right? So he's telling them, he's telling, he's giving these, these pictures. He's saying, this is what happens when you get healed. He says, at first, one part of it, he says, these, the, you, your roots will be like the roots of a cedar of Lebanon. Well, the cedar of Lebanon, uh, that picture showed too, is they grow in the wilderness. They often grow in places where rain doesn't happen very often. And so their roots go way down. Second thing is, this is where that east wind blows. Cedar of Lebanon is a tree that stands basically alone oftentimes, which is the most vulnerable to high winds, instead of having other trees to break up the high wind. And they stand because their roots go so deep and their roots are so powerful. So when he says... Uh, in verse, here we go, I found it again. I will be like the dude of Israel, he will blossom like a lily, like a cedar of Lebanon, he will send down his roots. He's telling Israel, look, you're gonna be, you're gonna be strong. This is what happens when you turn to me. I give you strength. Your roots go down to weather what? The storms. So that when these things happen, when life happens, you can navigate life successfully. And so, his anger, he says, this is how it gets turned. In verse 6, he says, his young shoots will grow. Israel's young shoots will grow. His splendor will be like an olive tree, a tree that was highly prized back then. His fragrance, like the cedar of Lebanon, that, that fragrance that the wood had. People will dwell again in his shade. In the desert, shade is incredibly important. They will flourish like the grain. They will blossom like the vine. Israel's fame will be like the wine of Lebanon, Ephraim, what more have I to do with idols? I will answer him and care for him. I am like a flourishing juniper. Your fruitfulness comes from me. The juniper was a broom tree that got, brought shade. It was very aromatic and uh, it smelled wonderful. And he, and he says, your fruitfulness comes from me. Now, this is important for us because it shows us purpose. In Psalm 1, the psalmist writes, blessed is the man who does not, and he tells about how he avoids all these things in terms of allowing evil into his life. But the important thing he says, he shall be like the tree, she shall be like the tree planted by streams of water. In the desert, and I know this is a review for a lot of you, in the desert, water is life. If you're in a caravan crossing the desert, you don't go from point A to point B in a straight line. You go oasis, 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 B. Because water is life. That's the only way you survive in a long journey across the desert. And if you're in the desert, and I have been in the desert before, uh, um, if you see in the distance some trees, what does that tell you? There's water. Trees grow by water. And water is life. The tree is not life. 
the tree is a signpost. It's a sign saying, here's water. Here's water. He says, you, me, we're the trees. In Psalm 1, we're the trees. We say, hey, there's life here. I found life. You'll grow here. And then what does he say? That tree bears its fruit in season. What does the fruit do? The fruit becomes a blessing to others, right? If you go and, and, and you pick a fresh apple off, off an apple tree and you eat that apple and it is delicious, that apple now has become something delicious to you because the tree bore its fruits, because the tree had its roots in water. And so for us as Christians, what are we? We're signposts. Hey, there's, there's life here. I found life. I found life. How can I be a blessing to you? How can I serve you? How can I love you? So that you can enjoy the fruit of this life that I have in my life. And so we are a blessing to others. Your fruitfulness comes from me. And now we're at the end. We say in, in, uh, in verse 8 here, I'm sorry, I just want to mention this. Don't run to idols. This is, this is the heart of the matter. Don't run to something that you think God can't handle. If you think God can't handle it, don't run to something. Trusting other things is a way of saying, I don't trust you, God. And he says, don't do it. He's saying, I will take care of you. Trust me on that. I will take care of you. So in chapter 14, he's told them, I want you to come back. They said, how do we come back? Here's how you come back. Confess your sins. He says, repent, come to me. Make your vow. God, I'll follow you. you know, trust him. And he says, then what happens? God says, then I, then I act in your life. I bring strength in your life. I bring wisdom in your life. You have access now. As, as followers of Jesus Christ, you have access to the wisdom that created the universe. We have access to that through the spirit of God. And he says, trust me on this. And then there's an epilogue. This is very rare in wisdom literature. Who is wise? Let them realize these things. Who is discerning? Let them understand. The ways of the Lord are right. The righteous walk in them, but the rebellious stumble in them. So who is wise? He says, let them realize. Let them come to an understanding of these things. Understanding. Then he says, who is discerning? Let them understand. And that word, they translate it understand, but it has this deeper meaning of actually beginning to understand how it applies to my life. How does this work out in my life? He says, so realize this. Think this through. Understand this. The ways of the Lord are right. And the righteous walk in them. The ways of the Lord will cause the unrighteous to stumble. They don't like it. It doesn't fit. So God, Hosea is, this book is the wisdom of God. It's a warning to them. It's a warning to us. It teaches about the human heart. It teaches about God's heart at the same time. And there's great wisdom here. And now it falls upon us to learn it and apply it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth and the wisdom that is in your word and how it impacts us every day. Lord, help us to follow hard after you, to walk in the, in the footprints of our rabbi. And Lord, as we do that, we grow and we become more like Jesus. What an awesome privilege we have. Help us to take this seriously as we leave this place. In Jesus' name.
Amen. Again, I just want to say, uh, as we are navigating um, the COVID-19 uh, virus, we're interested in different ways the church can serve in our church and in our community. We're interested in ideas that people may have of things where we can be more involved in lives. We would love to do that. We'd love to, for you to let us know. We've got a few things that we're going to be talking about in the next couple of weeks. Um, and, but we'd love to have more information and ideas on that. But for uh, those of you at home, thanks for joining us. And for everybody here, thanks for coming this morning and being a part of our worship service. Um, God bless you. You are dismissed.